off-gassing a scuba podcast with host Nick Hogle. In this roundtable episode, I sit back and listen to some of the biggest pioneers in the industry speak about the future of open circuit mixed gas and rebreather diving. Is there a future for open circuit mixed gas or is it yesterday's news? Are dual rebreathers becoming the standard for future explorations? Is it time for a new blueprint for survival? Join me with guests Richard Pyle, Brian Green, Bill Stone, Charlie Roberson, and Simon Mitchell in this historic roundtable discussion. I hope you enjoy. So first of all, I would like to uh, say thank you to everybody for coming on here today. I know everybody's really busy, so thank you for taking the time out uh, today to participate in this conversation. And the reason why I wanted to get this conversation going is to open up a roundtable discussion on the future of open circuit mixed gas and rebreather diving. And I couldn't have asked for a better group to have this conversation with. So um, if you are unaware, I am not a rebreather diver, but as I move or progress through this sport, I feel like it's a topic that keeps coming up. So obviously this is something that is piques my interest this conversation so we can open up it's an open up open conversation so if anybody wants to start and then we'll just see where the conversation goes Ryan why don't you start with our reasons why we'll never dive open circuit trimix again yeah okay yeah Rich and I actually had this conversation this morning because I was I'm questioning why anybody would dive open circuit trimix when here in Hawaii a cylinder of helium now costs three thousand dollars <laughs> Oh man, it's up. Yeah. And and we can't figure out if it's just the monopoly of the gas company here or if it's actually that expensive everywhere in the world now. What does a bottle of helium cost where you guys each live? Uh about the same. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So I was just told that um the embargo on helium is is over at least on the east coast and there is new supply and i just got some pricing uh, a bottle of uhp is about 500 dollars, and a bottle of just hp is 375 so not terrible wow that's what we pay for oxygen here in hawaii yeah it's over it's $300 for an oxygen cylinder now, which doesn't make any sense because there's no embargo on oxygen. It's just in the air. But, yeah. Anyway, so, I mean, more to the point, the question of, I mean, there obviously are still people who dive open circuit trimix, and there may have been a justification for that at some point in the past when, you know, rebreathers had not yet established a pretty decent track record in terms of, you know, the community understanding what to do and what not to do. But I wonder... At the cost of helium these days, are people doing it still as a cost-saving measure because they can't afford a rebreather, or are they doing it because there's some inherent concern about using rebreathers instead of open circuit among trimix divers? Does anybody have any insight on that? I'm I'm not sure it's a cost-saving measure uh, in isolation, Rich. I, I think that there's no question that that's an issue, and it's certainly an issue here. And our helium prices have been kind of what Brian quoted for quite some time now. I mean, we've been used to that as a as a significant constraint on open circuit trimix diving. But I think that it's 
it's largely about logistics these days too. You know, like it's so much easier to use these gases for deep diving to carry the amount of gas you need for deep diving using a rebreather than it is for open circuit. I mean, as we progress deeper, uh, and that's what we're all doing, you know, we're progressing to deeper wrecks, deeper caves, the need for uh, carrying so much gas with open circuit is just becoming prohibitive. I mean, bailout strategies uh, on rebreathers are considerably easier to formulate and manage than carrying all the gas that you're going to need for an open circuit dive. I, I think that that's been a big part of it, uh, driving the move away from open circuit trimix to rebreathers here. So Simon, you raise a good point, which is that even those of us who dive rebreathers trimix still carry open circuit bailout in a lot of our situations. And obviously there's a, a drift in other directions. Harry Harris and others obviously are, are, are pushing the boundaries, or I should say not pushing the boundaries, but reawakening us all to uh, the concept of taking closed circuit bailout instead of open circuit bailout, which is, I, in my mind is kind of one of the next frontiers on rebirth. Not that it's a frontier because people have been doing it for a long time. Bill, you've been doing it probably the longest, but in terms of mainstreaming technical diving, it still hasn't caught on widely as a closed circuit bailout option. And I guess I was curious what you guys think in terms of, is are we going to get there quickly or are we going to get there slowly in terms of uh, closed circuit replacing open circuit as the standard bailout for your average trimix rebreather diver? I mean, my experiences, we're actually seeing that now, and I think, you know, there was a lot of discussion about that at RF4. Uh, we've seen that over the last year or two. You see training agencies starting to talk about um, offering classes for CCR bailout. You see manufacturers that are offering bailout-specific units, uh, typically in a side mount uh, form factor. Um, just to go back to, you know, why somebody would adopt um, CCR, in my experience, and this was 10 or 15 years ago, so it was really before um, the monetary factor, you know, my experience was exactly what Simon described. It was just the logistical issues. Um, I was sort of pushing the boundaries of what was really safe and logistically possible on open circuit. And I realized pretty quickly that just all this extra stuff, not only was it expensive and difficult, but there was a safety issue there. It was um, taking too much of my attention away from what I needed to be focused on, the dive. Um, so I, I really feel like, Yes, CCR is obviously more complex than open circuit, but there's definitely a dividing line with depth or penetration um, where you certainly have a safety factor for that unlimited gas supply. Rich and I have always been in the situation, you know, out in the Pacific Islands where, you know, it's it's hard to move stuff around and you know pre-positioning pre-positioning a ton of helium for an open circuit expedition it just isn't an option. And from another from another perspective, the, the way we dive when we're on expedition, I couldn't see us like logistically being able to ever fill the tanks at the end of the day if we were doing open circuit. Like it just wouldn't work in our expedition paradigm. Plus it's hard it's it's very hard to find 
helium and and a lot of the time oxygen out in these islands that we go to. So getting it down to them, um, we've been in situations where you know, we've we've shipped down like ancient steel 72s full of helium just to get them to these random islands. <laughs> I must say my mind is my mind's drawn to that. There's a famous photo it kind of did the rounds uh, on technical diving websites a few years ago of that guy with kind of surrounded by open circuit cylinders. Uh, you know, he's got about 10 of them kind of, I, I don't know how he did it. Uh, and I, you know, I've used it as a joke photo in various presentations over the years. And actually, interestingly, I can't remember his name, but he contacted me. He, he was someone you'd heard of, you know, like, and he was really unhappy with me using it as a joke because he was kind of trying to tell me that it was a serious thing. And I was like, come on, man, you can't dive like that. I mean, imagine trying to crawl into a wreck somewhere with all that crap on you. And, and, um, you know, I think it just that photo exemplifies exactly why we can't do what we do with open circuit. We we just can't. You know, it's um, and and to Rich's comment before about the 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 um, closed circuit bailout, uh, it's definitely happening. I mean, I think to some extent that's driven by the depth that the divers are going to and how much open circuit bailout they need to carry. I, I mean, I think. Closed circuit bailout may not become mainstreamed for your kind of classic 80, 90, 100 meter dives. But, you know, obviously, as you know, we use double megs for the very deep dives in the Pierce relatively recently. So down below 200 meters. And you, you really, you know, you are struggling. It's kind of the same problem. You're struggling to carry the open circuit bailout that you need uh, to those kind of depths. So, you know, bailout rebreathers becomes a much, uh, a, a much more you know, tempting option. And that's obviously the road that we've gone down for those dives. Uh, yeah, so I think it will become mainstreamed. And indeed, it was for very deep dives. And I it was endorsed at the RF4, in the RF4 consensus statements earlier this year. So when I played around with it a little bit, um, my big concern, the little demon in the back of my mind was, how do I know that first breath on that backup loop? is safe and i know one strategy is to alternate every few minutes so that you're constantly you know reality testing each loop but but you know with an open circuit bailout you have pretty high confidence when you stick that thing in your mouth and draw a breath you'll have a clean fresh breath um as opposed to a caustic cocktail or something else so i think to me that's the most the biggest psychological barrier obviously it would save the kind of logistics that brian and i do all the time i mean the depth and duration of our dive is entirely limited by logistics of open circuit bailout and we could extend our depth if we didn't have that constraint but but there's this little guy in the back of my head going but are you sure you're going to be able to breathe so i don't know how those of you have, used it, have experienced that. yeah it's a major thing rich um and the way the, the thing that, uh, above everything else, that's facilitated uh, dealing with that in the Pierce work has been the um, the double, like the dual bov thing, where you can switch between loops without actually removing the mouthpiece. So that facilitates doing exactly what you were talking about, which is you know switching between loops to make sure that the other one's working on a relatively regular basis. But I mean, I completely agree. Um, that that is the big concern and the thing that you know 
makes people most reluctant to do it is how, how do you achieve that? But, you know, there are ways of doing it, and that's one of them, is to have both loops plumbed into a common mouthpiece that you can switch between very quickly. Well, I guess for me, one of the big concerns is, is has that second loop flooded? And Bill, when you started doing dual loop rebreather diving with the Mark One, you know, you started off with waterproof canisters. And I wonder if, you know, if we're gonna ever be talking about the future of rebreathers, I wonder if part of that future is resurrecting the past and revisiting the idea of waterproof uh, absorbent canisters. Do you see that, Bill? Ah, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, geez, you know, we're, we're all over the map here. All I can say is that, uh, you know, uh, 36, 37 years ago, we had exactly these same discussions, um, you know, and that was, that was back when, um, when Heliox was just starting to be, you know, used in, in production. Uh, you know, we used we used a lot of it. We had exactly the same issues you had on your islands uh, over on South Andros Island with uh, Rob Palmer's uh, project out there. We were there for two months, and uh, getting the helium there was the big deal. And uh, I will say that at that time, um, there was an exact discussion on this whole question of you know how do you make the most of your gas, you know, and the. Uh, uh, even Bill, Ham Bill Hamilton used to say this was that you know the gold standard was Heliox and anything else was poor man's Heliox, um, you know. And, and you used to do this. The question was, you know, how much nitrogen can you can you tolerate, you know, so that you don't have to spend, you know, on on the helium. Um, but as far as the switching goes, um, you know, we we tackled that problem from 1984 to 1999, and we had. Uh, operational dual Mark Fives at, at Wakulla on that project, and they were being used for the last three or four uh, missions. And so, you know, to, to come down to some of the things that people talk about as far as, as logistics, we had an, a couple of experiments um, at, at Wakulla that perhaps some of you may not be aware of. Uh, one of which was that we had a DPV mounted rebreather uh, with disconnectable hoses, breathing hoses, that is. And the idea was that you would use the um, the DPV system for the primary mission, and if it looked like there was going to be a problem, either the DPV died or that rebreather died, then you switch to a back-mounted unit. But there was that same question: is you know, uh, when you switch to that back unit or the secondary rebreather, is it going to be good? And so we actually developed a checklist uh, for Wakala Two that went down that as to you know what you did and periodically how. Uh, how often you uh, uh, you did it, but let me just throw something out at here. You you made a statement a little bit ago here. You said uh, you know with OC bailout you have the confidence that when you grab that regulator you know you've got gas. I say not quite, my friend. What happens if during the time that those bottles were staged, one of them failed on you and you went to grab that and turn it on and it wasn't working? And there have been no, notorious dives. Uh, you're probably aware of him. Sheck Exley had these happen to him. Hassenmeyer had this happen to him. That's why he's crippled. Um, it's because of an OC failure on a bailout bottle uh, that was expected to work. So uh, in my mind, as long as you can uh, assure yourself that the alternate rebreather has gas, and this is, this is going to be a discipline thing, it is, it, it's the way to go. And I think Simon put his finger on it, but he didn't go quite far enough. Really, the next step is gonna be full helmet diving with comms, and then your switching is internal uh, for the, the dual loop system. And I think, honestly, that's where things are headed. It's gonna be more like a spacesuit than a diving rig.
Rich, my experience is, uh, you know, I, I agree with what you guys have said. Um, and one of the things I'll point out from our experience is that you, you certainly want to verify that that secondary uh, loop is working. You want to do that periodically. The problem is every time you do that, you're introducing a failure point because this is when loops get flooded. Uh, when people are switching back and forth, they get confused, um, they're task loaded, and they forget to shut off one loop or the other, and now you've, now you've flooded your loop. So you sort of have to weigh the, um, you, you don't want to be doing it every five minutes, I would say. You certainly probably want to do it a, a couple times, maybe uh, once when you get to depth. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing it very frequently. Uh, because we've seen this happen quite a few times. Right. Well, anyway, what I was going to say is one of the things when I played around with building dual loop rebreathers, I, I, I'm the original Poseidon rebreather had these transparent breathing hoses. And so that at least gave me a visual, like I can see what's inside that loop I'm about to breathe now. And I was wondering whether what's the value in having transparent canister housings and whatnot. So you have at least some sort of visual confidence that you're not about to slurp in a whole bunch of water when, on that first breath. Um, has anyone really played around with transparent either canisters or hoses? Or I know they're not, the, the plastics used to make transparents are more brittle and they're, you know, it's subject to UV. And so there's cost benefits there, but I don't know how much priority to put in having a transparent loop so that I can see what's going on inside. Yeah, I don't know whether that was part of what Peter Reedy was doing with the prism, but that had uh, transparent canisters. Uh, there was a guy at the Pierce, actually, one of the support divers this year, uh, had a prism, and uh, that was one of the discussions we had was exactly that. I, I mean, just looking at the construction of some of the units and the benefits that the various uh, configurations bring, such as preserving the temperature of the canister and protecting it from environmental temperatures. I'm just not sure you could do it, Rich, but it's, uh, you know, obviously, a, you know, it would be one advantage of doing so. I just think maybe, I think you'd get a lot of pushback from manufacturers if you tried to sell that idea uh, as something that, you know, like, w which which is the more important thing? I And I don't know the answer to that, of course, but, um, yeah. Whenever Rich and I see the prism scrubber uh, housing, we always think it would make a great fish bucket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think uh, at one point Rich actually did an experiment where they uh, they swapped a uh, a Mark V canister underwater uh, when you were doing deco, where they we uh, did, they we brought did it try back. to prove that was possible, but you see. This company, Cislunar, doesn't sell those canisters anymore. That's the problem. And and, and I'm trying to track down somebody who might be able to uh, to resurrect that. I know Leon was, was licensed them or something, right, to, to rebuild them for the Meg? He he did, and, and I still get, you know, requests for that kind of stuff. It's just uh, it's one of those things where the, the tech is available, uh, and, that, and that kind of thing could be. Uh, refired up. Uh, it's just I, I'm not sure that you know it's 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 a, it's a niche market, and so you have to think you know is it is it survivable to do it that way? It took a lot. I mean, even back when we were manufacturing those things, they were like costing us twelve hundred dollars a canister, and that was back in you know two thousand. So it's uh, yeah, it's a question of <clears throat> you know how much are people willing to pay for a capability? But the idea of a hydrophobic canister is feasible. Um, you can't. You can really only do it effectively in a radial canister. You can't do an axial canister. 
So um, Brian and I have them from our Mark Fives. We actually have several of them. But Brian, why don't you explain what you were telling me the other day about how you wouldn't even switch back to it? Well, I mean, we, we did run into problems with them over over years of use where it, 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 it's still waterproof, but it's also, once it gets wet, it creates like this barrier of no gas flow. And we would get this like, we called it scrubber lockup, where like on very long dives, just from the humidity of, of breathing for five hours, um, at the end of the dive, you were struggling to pull gas through that membrane. I remember there was one particular dive where, where uh, Rich did did have a flooded loop. This is at Fice Island in, in uh, Micronesia. And uh, he was able to clear the loop, but he was still not able to breathe through that canister because it was wet on the outside and you know, too much moisture was blocking that mer that that permeable membrane. I mean, I, I, w I would I would love to have a new one, but resurrecting the old one would be uh, iffy. So the, the problem we had with those with those Mark V canisters is, you know, they had a, a, a pleated. They were radial canisters, and so they had this pleated hydrophobic membrane on the outs outer shell. That was never the problem. But on the inner core, there was another pleated membrane that had the same surface area of material. But because it was such a small diameter, the pleats were all sandwiched really close together. And what would happen, according to Richard Nordstrom, I don't know, Bill, you can corroborate this or not, is that over time, dust from the softener lime would eventually sort of get on that material. And when that material got wet, that dust would clog the pores. And on the outer membrane, it never seemed to be a problem. But if you got water on the inside, which is where Brian mentioned long dives with condensation, that's how you get water on the inside core that's what would cause it to lock up so i always figured you, when you have a flood your flood is usually on your exhale side so it's that outer surface area that you really want to protect um and maybe i thought maybe as a, le a, a larger pore size or something else that would allow lower surface area on the inner might solve that problem but then brian also pointed out the other thing we were talking about this the other day is what in a pain in the ass those things were to pack and and that adds another layer of of like well, okay, radial canisters are good, hydrophobic's good, but man, do I have to pack this thing every single time and make sure it's properly packed. I, I won't argue with you there, Rich. We'll, we'll, we'll switch to cryogenic canisters soon. <laughs> <laughs> How much does liquid oxygen cost in Micronesia? <laughs> hey, I've got a question for you guys. Uh, at least uh, Rich and Bill and Brian, I know you guys are huge advocates of um, the solid state sensors and have been using them for quite a while. Um, we've been playing with them ourselves and, and I'm pretty happy from what I've seen so far. Why do you think the, uh, the rest of the industry is lagging on this? Oh, I can comment on that. Um, <laughs> well, it depends on who you talk to, but um, essentially I think there's an element of not invented here. Um, and because I've talked to divers at DEMA and stuff who say, oh, that solid state sen sensor, that's just a gimmick, right? You know, and because essentially only one manufacturer was producing them for multiple years. And so the competitors of that one manufacturer, my understanding was, would say, oh, that's just hype. It's not a real technology. But if you shove all the, the manufacturer trade wars aside, to me, those solid state sensors are the single most revolutionary change in my confidence in rebreathers as a life support system, you know, pretty much anything, at least in the last decade. I, I don't know, Brian, you may want to chime in too, but but I've just find them to I be agree. 
massively more reliable than galvanic sensors. I mean, for a while, it was funny. We were using the original early prototypes to the point where they designed the the interface where the prototypes would no longer talk to the computers, but Brian didn't want to give up his prototype because he had years of experience of it not failing. I trusted on it. it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I use that same that same prototype. Um, so I'll say I use it as on my secondary uh, monitoring system, but I used it for five years. The same sensor. You know, I, I if I can jump in here a little bit. Um, you know, you, there's a bunch of you guys were at RF4. Uh, I was going to go. Unfortunately, we had a two and a half month expedition done in, in Oaxaca, as we usually do in the spring. And uh, you know, I heard this uh, this discussion several times. And uh, we've we've had a number of uh, of discussions uh, trying to encourage collaboration. Uh, for example, between Poseidon and uh, Shearwater. And I think, you know, as Rich put it, there, there is this unfortunate aspect of, uh, you know, trade sense of vulnerability by, you know, uh, giving into something that is different. Um, but when you look at the data, I can't remember, maybe it was you, Simon, that quoted this at RF4 regarding the total number of rebreather fatalities is somewhere up over 700 now uh, that have been tracked. Is that correct? No, I think it was, so I think the number's correct, but it was Frauke Tillmans who gave that presentation. Yeah. Right, right. And so, you know, there's still this ethical issue in my mind that a lot of these rebreathers that are being put on the market don't have the ability to tell you what happened in the event of an accident. Uh, you know, we went, we went down this from day one on the, on the Mark One. We had, you know, EEPROM chips that were logging data, and Rich is very well aware of how this whole discussion went over the course of the last, you know, 40 years, um, which was that, you know, by the time we got to the Mark 7 Poseidon unit, we had three separate uh, unerasable uh, chips that were logging data that you could get to in an accident at different levels of fidelity and the things that they logged. Um, when you look at that and combine that, you know, with the, the knowledge of what is likely to happen, you find out that a hypoxic blackout is the predominant failure mode when you talk about a, a fatality. Uh, yeah, you can have toxes, you know, and they are serious as all get out if you're on a deep dive and that's, you know, the only way you got out if you can't get into a bell or something like that. Um, and you can have things like people not putting canisters in, you know, and we've, we've heard them all. Uh, but by, by and large, the, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the room is, do you know what your oxygen concentration is? And the problem with the chemical sensors, as we found, and probably everybody in this room knows viscerally, is that you can have a brand new sensor, put it in, and have it behave differently from what you thought, you know, one that was spent was. And so that's that was the motivation, and it took almost 15 years uh, to to get that SSO2 sensor to, to where it is. But there's a uh, there's a second step involved. It's not simply say, get yourself an SSO2 sensor and you'll be safe. The other part of it is that you need to validate that it's giving you good numbers. And I've seen, you know, on a number of um, uh, readouts, uh, I have seen, for example, on, on a shear water where you can look at uh, what your FO2 is and what the projected PO2 is, uh, and you can then, you know, mentally compare that to what your sensors were. Back, back with the Mark V, we actually had a backup display uh, that would give you a direct drive sensor uh, data, and you could compare it and look at it. 
Uh, and then on the flip side, there was the FO2, the projected PO2, and then the, the PO2 of all the sensors. And so immediately, you could do your own math and flag and say, these are wrong. But a lot of people get carried away thinking that rebreathers are automatic um, and just trust it without having that validation part. You can still use galvanic sensors as long as you're doing the validation part. And whether you do that you know, manually or whether you do it automatically, uh, that's, you know, that's a nuance, I think. Uh, th there are pros and cons to, to both. You know, I, I tend to go with the, the automatic, you know, but I'm checking every five minutes to see if it's, if it's actually uh, true. And so when you, when you get down to all these questions of, you know, do you want rebreather bailout? You know, as, as Charlie said, you know, the, 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 and, and Simon as well, the big deal is, you know, do you trust that you have uh, a non-flooded loop? Okay, that's, that's a risk. And so you can balance all these risks out and decide, you know, what are the procedures uh, that you want to utilize for, you know, trusting these switches. As, as Simon said, you know, Harry and those guys are, are using a dual BOV. Um, I, I love it that you guys have adopted all the acronyms that we invented. <laughs> we did not invent BOV. I hate BOV. <laughs> but you know, I, I think I think that's it. I think it's it's. Uh, there's no question at all. You know, regardless of helium price, um, of what you want to do below a certain depth. You know, and anybody who thinks that there's a place for open circuit, you know, maybe. You know, it's an emergency thing that you have on a boat. You know, if you have to get down and undo your anchor at 100 meters depth or something like that, where you've got a five-minute dive or something like that. But otherwise, you know, the the stories of the risks of open circuit at depth are just beyond measure. I mean, I've lost a lot of good friends uh, because they were doing that kind of stuff where they couldn't carry enough heliox or, or trimix in a... Uh, you know, in a bailout or a side mount system, and they, you know, went down, they ran low on their heliox mix, and they had to transfer to air on the way up, you know. Uh, that's how Rob Parker died. And, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, goes on. So it's, to me, it's like open circuit, you know, it was a phase of technology that was, you know, it opened the door when uh, Cousteau introduced it, you know, to the world. And then there was another barrier when they found out that you know, you couldn't go beyond a certain depth because of the nitrogen problem, and then we found out that we could switch to helium. And by the way, you know, we weren't the, we weren't the first to use helium. You know, there was the whole stuff with Bond and crew back in the 30s with the Navy was investigating all that for commercial diving. You know, and then there were groups in South Africa using it in the 60s. Um, so it just kind of came, you know, and got reinvented along the way. But the the bottom line is, and in, in every everybody here, I'm sure has been at 100 meters plus and had an open circuit tank and you know you're watching the gauge you know the dial go down visibly with every breath not not you know not over a couple of minutes but every single breath you watch that gauge ping down and back up that's scary as hell you know and and that's one of the reasons why when we were uh, at the first we'll call it project we were trying to figure out ways to gang tanks together because we didn't have we didn't want to have to do these regulator switches so we had sleds with four uh, composite tanks on them, or sometimes three, um, and then we try to gang that together. There's a sketch that Terry Skiles did uh, for the Wakulla book that had this guy on a DPV, and there's this gigantic string of tanks being towed behind them, you know, for open circuit. And that was the, you know, that was the the reality of 1987. But that's not today. Um, I, and I can't remember if this came out, Rich, but I think you guys were talking about a. Uh, uh, a working group to look at the issue of uh, how to make dual uh, rebreather systems uh, effective and what standards ought to be in place for training. And
Well, I think the time has come for something like that. Um, and, and I know each of you has experience with it, but it seems like, you know, in the early days of technical diving, there were these little epicenters around the world where everyone was reinventing the same wheels, right? I was out in Hawaii and the, there was the Florida crew and the England crew and Australia crew. And, and when, you know, Mike Menduna came along and sort of gave us AquaCore and a forum to talk to each other, suddenly the pace of advancement accelerated because we could not only learn from our own mistakes, we could learn from everybody else's mistakes. And it feels like, you know, even though like Olivier Isler and, and others have been using multiple loop rebreathers for a very, very long time, they haven't been on the cusp of mainstream, but I think now they're on the cusp of mainstream and maybe it's time, you know, to find out who has experience using multi-loop dives, you know, and some of them use it for extra duration. Some of them use it because it's the only practical way to go that deep. Some of them use it because they can't get enough helium wherever they're going. I mean, there's different reasons for having it. And it seems like those who are who have been exploring it ought to get together and start sharing experiences and writing them down and sort of write a Sheck Eckley style blueprint for survival, but with, uh, you know, multi-loop rebreathers. That's actually a really good idea, Rich. Um, it would make a great kind of next step workshop. You know, maybe the next rebreather forum, or maybe we don't want to wait that long. Uh, Ten years? You know, <laughs> I don't yeah, know if I no, want to that's wait right. Long. Yeah, um, maybe some, you know, like an Oztech workshop or a Eurotech or Tech Dive USA. Like one, so there'll be a forum uh, where it can be done. And I actually think if you know, like just knocking these subjects around between this group, uh, which is a pretty expert group. Uh, it's emerging that the use of dual rebreathers is probably mainstreaming that is probably the next big step forward. And uh, I think that would be a very good topic for a workshop somewhere. I agree. Yeah, Bill, Bill, we, we had talked to a few people at RF4 about this idea, including Harry Harris. Just b based on the the number of like side mount rebreathers I saw at RF4, every time I saw one of those, I was thinking, hey, could I use that as bailout? Um, so I think that is the direction that things are going to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, of course you could. Of course you could. And uh, that's exactly how they're marketing them. You can use it as a, as a bailout rebreather. And... You know we're already there like wet mules that that's our that's our mo now you know that's it for these deep dives that's how we're doing it it's kind of a no-brainer it's how we how we get it over the hump into the sort of wider community that's the thing and i think rich's idea of a of a um you know a workshop uh at, at a suitable forum in the near future would be terrific yeah yeah i i would uh, i would underscore workshop not forum because we've had you know panels and things like that at, at places like Oztech and you know you get a few sound bites but it really doesn't advance uh, the, the technicality of it um, you know I tend to live in a, a couple of different worlds you know you guys uh, tend to be focused on diving but I do a lot of uh, different types of expeditionary work are any of you guys familiar with uh, Petzl mm -hmm. yes the, uh, you know the mountaineering uh, well, sure they started they started off actually being cavers and uh, if you, if you ever have a chance to um, look at one of their catalogs, it's really quite curious. You know, they, they have a bunch of very uh, inventive people, uh, or a group rather, in their, uh, their engineering uh, team. And so they're constantly coming up with crazy ass gadgets for you to try to use on rope and things like that for all possible purposes. But the really interesting thing is that they have an entire section, you know, not just one page, but more like about 20, of how you can utilize these things. 
And to me, that's something that's completely missing in diving right now. What you what you have is a couple of leaders that move forward. And so, you know, it, it's interesting to me to see this this path that we've followed. You know, when, when we started thinking about, well, when I started thinking about rebreathers in 1984 after a discussion with John Zimmerich, um, at a place, I guess you, you've been there, Charlie. You've been to the Pena, Colorado, right? I have. You have, yeah. Right. See, so that that conversation took place right there at base camp in that, that canyon, and, and John said, you know, you don't need to go open circuit. Here's how you do it, and uh, and from that point forward, the recognition was that open circuit was not really where things had to go. It had to be a redundant rebreather if you were going to actually have true redundancy because you know uh, that was just the logic at the time I, I studied a lot of stuff you know including the NASA spacesuit you know plus and a few other things and looked at their architectures and their architectures were single point failures and so this whole idea moved forward at least on my my you know point of view was okay how do we make a dual rebreather work and then what happened is there was a funny change and it got to the point where it was no longer experimental and we had to do something with it which turned out to be this 1994 san augustine expedition and immediately what happened was people said you know i feel comfortable managing one rig why don't we do this thing where we have bailout bottles okay and you could either do a butt mount bailout bottle or you do side mounts with open circuit you know, and then have the rebreather, and that way, you know, you you kind of get the best of both worlds. When you were doing production stuff, you would you would use the rebreather, and if you had a bailout, you had a string of bottles. We actually had a string of bottles through the San Augustine sump. Uh, a lot of people don't don't know that, uh, but they were there, they were placed, and uh, and so you could use them if you had to bail out. And then everybody was diving side mounts and, and the uh, uh, back mounted rebreather, and that went all the way through, uh, you know, we'll call it two until the end when the whole thing came back again. And everybody said we're getting too far. This is the the bailout string is not going to work. <clears throat> and so we were we were being pushed by the nature of the problem. Just as Harry and and Craig are, you know, down there at the Pierce and Charlie and guys, you know, it's um, so you're back, you know, to realizing that closed circuit bailout is what you need, and that's that's independent of closed circuit decompression. But I would throw another thing in here on the basis of this whole analog to the Petzl catalog, is that there are other places you can put rebreathers. And we started to crack that door open at Wakulla, which is having DPVs carry your rebreather for you as a bailout. You say, oh, that's crazy. Well, you know, go and experiment. Um, the idea of being able to have disconnectable breathing hoses that went into that with the counter lungs on your, on your chest and shoulders, that worked. We, we tried it out. And it was one of these things where it was an experiment and everybody gradually migrated towards the uh, the dual rebreathers on your back approach, which is what Craig and, and Harry are using right now. Um, and so to me, it's like how you rig this up is what your mission determines. And so, you know, do you want a DPV carried system? Maybe if you're going a long distance and, and you don't want the drag on your back, you know, you let your vehicle do the drag uh, characteristics. And then, you know, how do you, to me, there was, there was another one that, that Charlie was talking about, you know, switching and going back to a rebreather. You know, it's the bigger one to me is if you leave a rebreather hanging, you know, on a shot line or if you have it at a, you know, a stage depot on your way back to your, you know, your habitat or whatever um, in, in a place like Wikiwachi, what happens when you turn that mouthpiece? You know, is there a, is there a way to ensure that that thing hasn't flooded while you've been out there for the last eight hours doing saturation work at 100 meters depth. Uh, those are, are kind of the things. Plus, 
what are the management procedures? And if you do have a dual rebreather, should be should you be talking? You know, should the computers be talking between those? You know, and if you don't have computers talking between you, how are you going to manage that manually? You know, you're going to have a bunch of tables and transfer your tissue tensions. Uh, you know. Anyways, I, I'll shut up for a bit here and listen. Hey, Bill, what what if I had a uh, an autonomous underwater vehicle that had a rebreather built into it that followed me around? <laughs> uh, yeah, I believe that's I believe that's called Copus. Yeah. <laughs> Rich can explain. <laughs> I mean, you're right, Bill, that these ideas of um, rebreathers being used in different applications, um, you know, we're using habitat rebreathers now. I know they are as well in the Pierce Resurgence. Uh, I would never go back to open circuit in a habitat. There's just no reason for it. Um, so we have a habitat scrubber, uh, makes our life uh, so, so much nicer. Um, but that's not unlike what you're talking about is disconnecting the rebreather from, uh, the back or the normal usage and utilizing it in different ways. Um, so I, I think all of these ways that we're starting to utilize, whether it be habitats or side mount, are going to start pushing the envelope and changing the way we think about the use of the, uh, of the technology. You know, going back to the, the idea of a workshop, um, would it be feasible to give people practical advice on all of these options and, and what the nuances are and what the trade-offs are? You know, to, 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 I, Rich hit on a note back there saying, you know, what we need is a blueprint, you know, blueprint for survival for rebreathers. Um, Simon knows this for, <coughs> for sure, and Rich does it, that we were back at whatever it was, RF3, I guess, uh, down at Duke University or whatever. And uh, there was somebody who had uh, given a, uh, a talk about uh, fatalities uh, relating to cave diving, not, not open circuit, or not, not, uh, not uh, rebreathers, but uh, open circuit cave diving. And uh, they had a timeline of uh, the rate of fatalities per year and, uh, and, and, and by year, you know, by annual. And so, you know, it started off like in 1965 or something like that and went up. And the date at the peak of the, the curve was when Blueprint for Survival was published. And beyond that point, there was an exponential drop-off in fatalities in, in cave dives. Just because of that, I mean, it was traced right to it. There was no question about it that that was the dividing mark. I mean, yes, there was implementation you know, through training agencies and things like that that were all getting fired up at that time too. But nobody had ever codified it in a way that could be usable. And that's really what that little tiny blue book did. So. Maybe it is time for something like that for rebreathers and, and all of their manifestations, you know. And, and I, I think, you know, it was simpler back in, in the old days where, you know, guys like Exley and Clark Pitcairn and John Zimmerick and Paul Deloach would go down and they'd drag tanks in and stage them in the caves, you know, to where they'd have two, three, four sets of stage bottles in the cave and then they'd do their, their big dive and then they'd come out looking like that, you know, <laughs> that picture of the, of the guy surrounded by... <laughs> you know, a tank farm of, of, of dead tanks, you know, and, and you come out like that. But the, uh, the thing was, that was the only method that anybody knew about back in those days. You know, they just got very good at what they had, right? Today, we've got a lot of options, right? You've got side mount rebreathers, you've got back mount rebreathers, we've got potentially vehicle mounted rebreathers, potentially AUV carried rebreathers. You know, this is not science fiction, it's actually happening. You know, it's, it's underway. Um, so, 
the big question to me would be, how do you get across to people who have an objective? You know, I want to do this. What are you, what are your options for that? And then laying out what the what the deal is, what the steps are, what the risks are. You know, what you have to pay attention for. You know, if I'd have had something like that, I would have used it. Simon, you're the most experienced among us for organizing workshops. What would it involve? I mean, do we have to get a sponsor or you know pick a venue? How, what what are, what are the mechanics of getting a group of people together like that? I think you call Michael Menduno, right? That's the first step. <laughs> yes, you need some enthusiasm, you know, among a among a leadership group. Uh, but I, I actually don't think it would be that difficult if we tacked it onto uh, an extent. Uh, conference of some sort because one of the things you fear when you organize something like that is that you might not get the sort of you know a quorum of people or you won't have the momentum required to you know get a suitable audience but if you if you tack it onto something that's almost guaranteed to succeed like an Oztech or a Tech Dive USA that I think it would work pretty well and and then you just need yeah you just need I don't think you need a lot of money. Uh, you know, usually they pay for themselves with uh, attendees paying a you know a fee to go along, and uh, you need a good faculty. Uh, but I don't think it, for a subject like that, I don't think we'd have any difficulty. I think there'd be lots of uh, you know leaders in the field who'd be quite happy to come along and share their experience. And uh, the other thing you do need, though, and this is where I've often found, I've found myself cast in this role a number of times, is you need someone who's prepared to uh, you know, essentially grip it up and write it, write it up in a in a coherent kind of way, and and like overall lead the process of producing the workshop findings. And uh, you know, as you saw, you know, you were a very strong participant in the RF four consensus statement, you know, session, which is hard work. You know, those things. Are, um, you know, you've got, you know, 50 or 100 of the biggest egos in the diving world packed into one room and everyone wants to have their say and it's not always smooth sailing. But um, if you've got strong leadership in that regard, uh, you know, usually you can nut out some useful consensus statements and I, I don't think it would be that difficult. I, I And I, look, you know, depending on when the next one comes around, I would be... Uh, happy to you know maybe talk to you about it rich you what you want is people you know strong leaders who people respect and who they'll respond to it you know request for talks and participation but i think i think we could do it i i think it would be well worth it i just i'm just trying to think the next oztech will probably be next year uh that could be a target uh or you know something else you know, in a similar time frame, you need to start at least a year out. You know, it can't be done at the last minute. Anyway, I could rave on for ages about how to organise a workshop, but I think it's doable. But I would strongly recommend tacking it on to something that's already going to happen rather than trying to organise it as a de novo event. I think one of the tech shows would be perfect. So one of the one of the most effective workshops. I've ever been actually there were several of them in a totally different field uh, database informatics biodiversity stuff the way they structured it was they sort of pre-organized it with the group of people who were the obvious you know the most vocal and and experienced in in the realm 
before there was any talk of an actual physical workshop with attendees, they got together and communicated regularly via email. It was before Zoom, but you could do it with Zoom. And they actually generated, Simon, the, the manuscripts ahead of time. Um, and rather than, because you can never get them to write the manuscripts afterwards, right? That's just whoever, whatever, whoever suckered into being the coordinator of, you know, the, the cat herder always ends up getting screwed on that. But the idea was to generate the written materials in advance and hammer them out and review them among this sort of smaller circle of peers. And then when there's kind of this sort of emergent consensus and you've already gotten most of the proceedings written, that's when you plan a, a sort of broader with attendees workshop and you have the presenters present what has already been vetted through each other and, and refined through each other. And that way you kind of hit the ground running already once you put it out there. And it's not that you create the final form behind closed doors in the ivory tower, but you at least get a head start on, on the outlines of what the conversations are, what the, the weaknesses are, what the main contentious points that people disagree on. And that way when you open it up to a broader audience, you, you have a little more focus on the areas that needed attention rather than all the egos just arguing with each other about, you know, everything. I don't know. That's just one one approach to take. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing scientific workshops for a long, long time, and the danger that you get is that they just turn into gab fests, and then somebody like Simon or myself ends up spending a year or two trying to decipher what the heck was said, and and putting it down and, and getting it into print. You know, um, to me, it would be. I, I like what Rich has said here. The the rub is trying to figure out what constitutes the forward progress that you really want out of this thing. And having that goal clearly labeled uh, before you even go in. Uh, so that, you know, if it turns out that somebody missed something, which I doubt if you had this crew right here, you know, involved with that, plus maybe, you know, you know another, another five or ten, um, you, you could quickly iterate on what the issues are. And then to me, the, the, the trick, you know, what is the purpose uh, of this this proposed workshop? You know, and and to me, it's to do the same effect that uh, Exley's book had uh, on the safety of diving, right? You know, we've we've got this we've got this high performance you know Lamborghini here that has been invented, and and those who are fortunate enough to have the cash to own one and, and the places to use them have been doing extraordinary things, you know, for the past 30 years. And there's still the issue that these are Lamborghinis and if you get somebody behind the wheel and they say, wow, I've got a Lamborghini, I'm going to push my pedal down all the way to the floor and see what happens. Well, you know, if you're not a trained driver, you know, the problem with curves and ice and trees come to play, uh, you know, and then you have another statistic. And so to me, the number one goal coming out of this would be number one how do we instruct people in a, in a manner that is entertaining and this is why i go back to this petzl catalog because this is what they do right you look in there and they, they say here's a scenario here's how you might solve it you know and then they go to the next page here's another scenario right and so to me a, a series of um chapters if you will that say if this is what you're trying to do with diving here's how you might do it safely and here's what the risks are lay them out you know and here's what you got to pay attention to explicitly and then at least somebody coming into this new uh, and even some of the you know some of the rest of us here you might want to reread that before you go you, you do your next you know big push or whatever um, 
because let's face it, you know, there, there's still this world of open circuit diving. It's it's how people basically learn, and you know, from there to 30 or 40 meters depth, it's how most of the world is still going to go underwater. And so, what we're talking about here is a handbook for the elite. You know, the the people who were the equivalent of the the cave divers of the early 1980s, who were the ones who were doing things at open circuit. You know open water divers were never even thinking about back in those days and now here you've got this tool and people are doing unusual things with it and so you know and we do have this track record and it's very similar we're still on the curve up you know when I want to use that analogy to Exley's you know curve of cave diving fatalities we're still on the curve up we haven't reached the peak so the question is how do we turn the peak you know and maybe Hey, if I can jump in there for a second, um, I think you bring up a really good point, and it's the danger of cheerleading the technology too much and pushing it out to people, you know, and I applaud, you know, Rich and Brian, your hesitancy to just um, strap on a, a bailout rebreather and, and say, go for it, um, because there is a cost, um, and it... You know, there, there, there is a real cost. It, there's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that, and unless you do it incrementally, it, it's, it's a lot. Uh, you've got two loops to monitor. You've got two sources of oxygen. You've got two of everything now, and um, there can be a lot of task loading involved. And I think one thing we see with, you know, accident analysis is rarely it, do the machines break or. Or kill people it's the people make mistakes usually because of some form of task loading and use the equipment improperly or get themselves into trouble uh, because they don't understand the the way to use the equipment so I think you know we need to approach this cautiously and not be too much of cheerleaders for the technology and, and have a uh, an honest assessment of how it can be used it reminds me back in the early days, like in the late 80s, a friend of uh, Brian's and I, a guy who used to probably still does do aquarium fish collecting named Tony Nahaki. I was talking to him. I had just gotten into trimix and, and was, you know, learning how to do all the decompression and everything. And Tony had routinely for the previous three decades been doing air dives to 300 feet to go look for rare fish that he would catch. And I was explaining him all the advantages of helium and no narcosis and, you know, accelerated decompression with oxygen. And he said, wow, that all sounds very impressive. But, you know, I think I'm just going to stick with the devil I know. And at that moment, I was thinking, you know, how, you know, how foolish of you to keep air diving when you have this better alternative. But then the flip side was how foolish of me to tell this guy who has 30 years of experience knowing what to do and what not to do in his paradigm you know, to push him in a new technological direction that is outside his, you know, area of comfort. And there's, there's no correct approach. There's truth in both of those. And so there was a long period of afraid of the, you know, stick with the devil I know when air divers didn't want to switch to trimix. And then there was a similar transition of open circuit trimix divers and whether they want to go to rebreathers. And, you know, maybe there's some of that going on with galvanic oxygen sensors versus solid state sensors. But I certainly think we're at that point now when it comes to closed circuit bailout versus open circuit bailout. You know, there's 
there's plenty of people out there who have lots of years of experience and know what the strengths and weaknesses are of their open circuit bailout paradigms and their babes in the woods when it comes to what are the costs and benefits of a closed circuit bailout. And, you know, maybe there's a there there and maybe it's not, but we need to sort of find that out. And then eventually, like all those other transitions, it'll be forums like this saying, why would anyone ever dive open circuit trimix again when there was a time when there was a rational reason, which is lots of experience and didn't want to try to learn a new technology when it may or may not be ready or, or they or may or may or not be ready. But that that's the transition I want to see us overcome with dual loop breathers. Either we decide that, yeah, they're, they're a neat niche solution to a very niche problem, or no, there's a general answer here. We just need to aggregate all of the wisdom and experience of people who use them to find all the gotchas and 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 design something that actually works in a broader spectrum of scenarios yeah uh and so, something to add to that rich you know from our our very small deep diving fish scientists niche world um we're not necessarily trying to push further um you know maybe maybe down to 200 meters if if, if we could but i i see it as more could having closed circuit bailout or a dual loop breather make us more flexible or more efficient. Uh, I think that's the, that's the thing. It's not, or I, even I more safe. we're not really, yeah. Or, and make it more safe. We're not really trying to push any further. Like there's no like deeper cave for us. It's like for us, it's kind of diminishing returns the deeper we go for fish diversity anyway. So it's also really cold down but, there if you're just wearing a shirt and it's really cold. Yeah. So. <laughs> You know, Rich, there's these things called wetsuits, and uh, they even have dry suits. Don't get me started. <laughs> That's not the purpose of this discussion. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to go back on one point that uh, Charlie said there, and, and that I don't think the goal here is to popularize uh, the, the use of, of rebreathers. Uh, I think it's to uh, provide a series of options that would allow it to be used safely uh, in environments. and. Part of that, I think, is elaborating what constitutes a, uh, a feasible uh, environment to work in uh, with the technology as we know it so far today. Um, you know, that we're, we're coming on, you know, only about whatever it is, eight months uh, after uh, Craig and, and Harry's uh, effort there with uh, hydrogen. And so, you know, there is this question, you know, in everybody's mind who has been paying attention to this is that, Okay, we have a data point of one uh, right now and some anecdotal evidence from a, a chamber dive, you know, conducted 35 years ago uh, by COMEX. And, uh, and so does that change our game? You know, Brian very ca cautiously threw out a number of 200 meters. And the reason that was there is because what we found out is through accidental data is that once you go beyond 200 meters, shit starts to happen. And... It's only a question of are you physiologically selected to survive that? You know, was your procedure better than somebody else's? Um, and uh, you know that, that we know that there's a problem when you, when you go beyond 200 meters. The rebreathers and helium opened the door from you know 40 meters to 200 meters. Is there is there an enabling agent to go further? And if so, how much further is is realistic? Uh, you know, you have these data points that done a 600 meter dive or was it an 800 meter uh, hydrogen dive Simon I think it was 800 right uh, 705 meters was the deepest chamber dive that COMEX did 
that was Mavristomus. Yeah. Right. So, so you have a data point there. You have a single point, and you have Harry and Craig's single data point. And so we're we're kind of at the at the age back when uh, there were a few rogues, you know, in the in the seventies and, and very early eighties who did do like a single uh, helium uh, related dive, and and uh, and then there were in some of those cases fatalities, and and everybody said, oh, geez, this is uh, too dangerous. We shouldn't be going here. And then it all uh, <coughs> kind of went into a, a hiatus for five, six, seven years. And, uh, and then it came back, you know, with a vengeance, and, and now it's here permanently. And so, you know, we're, we're not, I'm not, I'm not going out here and advocating hydrogen diving to anybody. You know, it's, it's just one of these things where it, we're seeing maybe what the next card turned over is here uh, and where that might go. So to me, if you, if you did do a, a, you know, a, a workshop like this, the idea would be, what can we come up with, with with regards to procedures that will make rebreather diving safer? And then what are some actualized methods and types of equipment uh, that you can use and what are their limitations and gains? Uh, you know, and so you, you, you basically build a, a how-to book, if you will, for people who are gonna do this anyways and, and maybe help them survive. I don't think the idea is to popularize it. I think the idea is for those of us who are explorers and who do have a reason uh, for going beyond 40 meters deep to say, okay, this is really, useful, you know, I'm going to read this document because there's a lot of collected wisdom in here on how to come out alive and, and not crippled. Um, that, that was my take on it. Not so much to say, hey, everybody should become a dual rebreather diver, you know, and let's all, let's all go out and, you know, follow Rich down to 200 meters and chase fish, you know, or, or follow Charlie into Wikiwachi. Uh, no, I don't think that's the case at all. Everybody knows that the people on this, this meeting right here are at the cutting edge, you know, and everybody's going to make their own decisions to do that and they're doing it internally it's just that there are other people who might try this and not have the benefit of that wisdom and you know end up one of those statistics i'd just like to see the curve turned back into that exponential drop that uh, blueprint for survival had on on cave diving and i think that's feasible so bill one of my favorite all-time quotes is as bill and brian at least know is from Bill Stone himself, which is the difference between adventure and exploration is data. And you had mentioned um, data points. And, and I, it occurred to me that Sheck wrote Blueprint for Survival on a foundation of actual body recoveries and actual accidents and statistically, you know, measurable. This is why you need three lights. And this is why, you know, all, all those sort of things. And obviously we have a data pool on rebreather fatalities that we could start with to build the, those sort of uh, survival modes. I remember at one point years ago, Kevin Gurr and, and Jill Heinerth and I were talking about sort of coming up with a rebreather equivalent of a blueprint for survival. And it kind of ended up being, you know, the ideas we bounce around were kind of like, well, this is what our experience tells us is a good idea, but it wasn't based on actual accident analysis. Like, like here's what actually gets people into trouble. Um, we have that for closer rebreathers. I don't know that we have that for dual or multi-loop rebreather dives yet. I know of at least one person who's died in the context of a multi-loop uh, rebreather, but but what we do have is near misses. So I think we're still kind of at that early stage of where the people who have tried it have had close calls, and, and a lot of the wisdom that emerges is more from the close calls than rather any kind of a statistical analysis of actual failure points. Uh, but you have to start somewhere and, and, you know, having, having at least that anecdote, what I call robust anecdote is better than nothing, you know, controlled data is better than robust anecdote. We saw the same thing in, 
in water recompression and other you know issues that were controversial for a long time but I, i'm not sure if i have a point here but i guess you know your point about data points i think needs to lie at the center of whatever conclusions emerge from some sort of consensus statement it needs to be driven by real world experience if not fatalities at least real world close calls rather than just sounds like a good idea because there's lots of sounds like a good idea in technical diving that turns out not to be such a good idea but it still it gets ingrained in standard i'm sure brian knows what i'm talking about in particular contexts um but I, that's the thing you don't want to do is a lot of arm waving and a lot of here's what i think the right thing to do is without having that based on a foundation of actual incidents and actual experience there i mean there is a certain amount of data available on uh single rb accidents right that should be uh, analyzed and the wisdom from that you know related but i think you're you're dead on is that there's not enough people using dual rbs or rbs and, and rb bailouts um, charlie let me let me just put you on the spot if i said charlie we're, we're gonna throw out some ideas for a workshop and we'd like everybody to tell us a story about how they nearly didn't come home do you have one sure would you be would you be <laughs> open enough to relate it? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, it, not me personally, but certainly within the team. And, uh, you know, I so, sort of already related that a little bit. And this is sort of the danger between switching back and forth between loops. And this is one of the biggest concerns that I, I've seen. Uh, even very experienced divers uh, can get task loaded and fumble that. You got any... Uh... Any anecdotes from the peers, Simon? So open disclosure, uh, it's it's been on the tip of my tongue to mention this as various among you have mentioned exactly this kind of thing. But one of our, so our decompression protocol for the the hydrogen dive involved, I think uh, Charlie mentioned it, uh, the use of Triton rebreathers hanging inside the deepest habitat. And uh, when they got to that habitat, one of them was flooded. Uh, and that caused us a lot of difficulty. Uh, and it was just lucky that, because uh, the the, the the gas inside those deep habitats is just air. So you, that's why the Triton rebreathers are there, you know, for breathing an appropriate decompression gas. And there's no scrubbers in those deep habitats, so can't breathe it for very long. Uh, and it's just lucky we had a, a very well choreographed series of visitations and buzzer comms and those deep habitats, we were able to send messages and get a, a sense that something was wrong, go down, figure out what it was. And then actually we had a period of several hours of quite, uh, I don't know, well, frenzied is probably too overstating it, but uh, moderately busy time mixing gas on the fly so that uh, it was Craig's Triton that was flooded and we had to supply him with open circuit gas to get ourselves out of that situation. And actually, he was going through it a lot faster than we thought he would. And you know, it was it was an issue because I, you know I was I was the surface supervisor and I was blowing out all my support divers going down and up, supplying him with gas. It just shows you exactly what you've all been talking about. You know, you have these redundant rebreather. Well, they're not really redundant in this setting. Like we're planning to use them, but a rebreather that's been sitting there waiting to be used, and then you find it's unusable. And it created quite a few issues. And I, you know, it's 
I'm telling you all this, it's going to come out in the documentary uh, because it's the, it's actually the big selling point for the documentary maker that, that I've got all this footage of us running around looking pretty panicked on the surface trying to mix all this gas really quickly and get it down to Craig so that he didn't suffocate or you know end up breathing air that had rising levels of CO2. And it, it was a bit of an issue. So um, yeah, right there is an anecdote from the Pierce that illustrates a number of the points that we've been talking about you know like redundant rebreathers well like rebreathers that have been sitting waiting to be used then not being usable uh it certainly affected our hydro i mean it all worked out but uh i'm just glad we had the logistics in place that we did can i can can i ask a question on that simon yeah was, was that triton unit breathed down to the hab or was it just carried down no it was carried down it was breathed yeah. in the habitat though when it was installed. Uh, it was carried down and then breathed when it was installed, but then left. Uh, and it was actually left overnight. Um, yeah, so it had been in there for probably 20, 20, 24 hours before it was discovered that it was unserviceable. So, so how, how, could it, how, could it, how could it flood? I'm curious. Uh, because it was hanging in the air, and then when they got down there, it had slipped down into the water. It was just a classic mistake, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it was all still sealed up, but I, I, don't, I don't actually know that we figured out exactly how it flooded, but it did. Yeah. There was actually a death in Florida. Um, a guy took his rebreather off, went through a restriction, continued to explore on open circuit. Uh, this was at the Devil's Eye um, about a decade ago. Came back to his rebreather, it was flooded, did not have the redundant open circuit gas to get out. So it, there's certainly data points that uh, uh, regarding that. That was Berman, right? Sorry? That was Steve Berman, right? No, that, this was a guy named Mark Fivey who did some of the, this was after Berman died. Uh, he was doing some of the exploration in the new, new section of Devil's Eye beyond the rock-on-rock rock restriction, and that's where he had left the, the unit. Well, this is one of the reasons why I hearken back to the waterproof canister, because if flooding is one of the fundamental ways you lose your, your loop, a waterproof canister makes that just a minor little inconvenience. Uh, you know, I have first-hand experience with that. That's the other side of first-hand experience. And and I kind of feel naked these days diving with a non-waterproof canister, knowing that how vulnerable it is to a complete loss of loop. I mean, there are only so many ways you can completely lose a breathing loop, even, you know, especially if you're if you're falling back to just pure survival mode. But one of those is you flooded the sorb. And, and you know, from personal experience, you can flood a loop and recover the loop as long as your sorb stays dry. So I, I don't know, for all the reasons why we may not want to revisit waterproof canisters, there may be some reasons why, if not a canister, I'd always try to envision not not the canister being waterproof, but a, an insert in the breathing loop, essentially having a hydrophobic membrane that a standard canister sits within. So you don't, you know, so the, the membrane stays with the rebreather and not with the canister. So you get the easy packing and so on. I still think there's there's value in trying to explore that as a as a, as a solution, if you're going to rely on a rebreather, not as a triply redundant bailout, but as a absolutely needed to survive piece of equipment.
Well, that's a good point, Rich. And you know, a lot of most of the back-mounted rebreathers have sort of solved this issue to, to some extent just in water tolerance. Uh, most back-mounted units have a have pretty good water tolerance. You can take on water, and it's either not going to reach the scrubber, or even if it does, it's not going to come back to the diver. The advent of side mount units now has completely turned that upside down. Side mount units are notoriously bad water tolerance. And that's just the nature of the design, really. Mm -hmm. That statement you just made is the kind of thing I would like to see emerge from this workshop. So, you know, that there's a an empirical difference between flooding potential for a side mount versus a back mount. And basically because a back mount holds a consistent and predictable orientation with respect to gravity, whereas a side mount may not, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's the reason or not, but, but, or if it's just simply, you need to take a back mount design and put it on a side mount. But, but that's an interesting thing that you just brought up there, Charlie. I didn't. Or, or, or you, or you just have a greater probability of bumping the mouthpiece, you know, in a side mount unit. Any, anything of that nature you know but that gets down to little things it's like a, a lot of stuff has a you, you remember the old uh, uh, mark 5 uh, gas control block rich right I don't know Brian maybe you've seen it yeah, too Brian, yeah uh, but there I was a feature on there that allowed yeah <laughs> there was a feature on there that allowed you to uh, go on open circuit oxygen during decompression and so you could actually plug a K bottle into that rig but we knew that that was a dangerous thing and you had to be really cognizant that that's what you were doing and so we put in a uh, a two-step lock on on the uh, the gas control panel so you had to consciously remember that you had to throw the one switch and then rotate the other switch and you couldn't do one without the other as a precursor and so you had to at least have some level of you know being there uh, you know, before you did that, you know, it was enough to make you think, because if you just randomly said, I need oxygen, I'm going to turn that valve, it wouldn't work. You had to say, oh, right, okay, I am using oxygen, I need to be sure that I'm, you know, above six meters or whatever these days. You know, this is something we don't have right now on uh, current, you know, for lack of a better term, we'll use the uh, the common term BOV, um, of, of having a, an inability to uh, open that unless, you know, you know that you've got it in your mouth, for example. You know, or like, or like Simon was talking, you know, with the, uh, the dual system. By the way, I've got a patent on that from 1990, Simon, that, that exact <laughs> concept. <laughs> That's fascinating. I can't, I can't remember who made those. Uh, it was one of the well-known manufacturers who made those for Harry and Craig. Uh, I don't know who it was. Uh, Perhaps I shouldn't name them, even if I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, yeah, no, they were made by. I'm sure Bill could sue for dozens of pennies for all the pro pro profits that's been made off of selling them. Well, that's right, exactly. Yeah, two in of two. Um, <laughs> so, so Nick, um, I don't know if you had any other areas that you wanted. You know, like we've kind of been rambling around a bit here, and I, uh, but you know, like incredibly productively, and I personally, this is heaven for me. Uh, sitting talking to guys like this about, you know, chewing the fat about rebreathers. However, um, I have a limited amount of time. I, I will need to go uh, by in, within 30 minutes at the latest. Um, so I just wanted to know if you had any other areas that you wanted covered uh, before I have to go. Um, 
No, no, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah, and on that note, we could definitely just kind of call it. Uh, no, this has been just great. I, I didn't think there would be an end to this conversation. That's why I just kind of put it out there as an open discussion. Um, so unless unless anybody else has anything to add, um, yeah, we could we could end it on on that note. The only thing I would say is this is a conversation we need to resurrect, uh, Rich, and well, all of us. Uh, I mean, we'd be a good core group and maybe a few others to think about a workshop on. Uh, I, I actually like the idea of a slightly broader, um, like a, a new, you know, revised blueprint for survival, uh, but with an emphasis on the emerging trends and technologies and rebreather diving, like, you know, side mount, like, you know, dual rebreathers for bailout, those kind of things. I, you know, it's time. The time has come. I think it's right. I think you're absolutely right. You know, Bill, you kind of said that. And uh, so I'd be very keen to re revisit that at some point. And um, I'm not sure I would take an overall, overall leadership role in the whole thing, but, uh, you know, it's something we could talk about. But uh, maybe when the next clearly high level technical conference gets mooted, we could talk about doing it there. Well, while we got you on the line here, Simon, just for just for fun, what do you what do you think the absolute depth limit would be for exploration with all the tech that we know and the possibilities that we've been opening up here in the last year? Well, so I, I think the Pierce is a good microcosm to uh, look at that question. You know, in terms of the Pierce. Uh, so we'd gotten to 245 meters in 2020, and at that point, you know, you're breathing probably something like 5% oxygen, 95% helium, 5% nitrogen, and uh, you're butting up again, and and and, the, and it's still going deeper, right? So the way forward is down, and so there's two problems that arise sim simultaneously and they have mutually exclusive solutions. So one is HPNS, which Harry gets quite badly. Uh, so he's flapping around, you know, quite a bit at 245 meters. But the other one is gas density. And the way to fix the HPNS is either to go down more slowly, which you can't, not in technical diving, or add a more narcotic gas. So if you add more nitrogen, you make the gas density problem worse. So you can't fix one problem without making the other one worse. So the answer is uh, a, uh, a light gas that's also slightly narcotic, and that's why hydrogen, right? So that's why the whole hydrogen thing came into it. Now, having done that and not blowing ourselves up and, you know, not causing any problems that, you know, not obvious, the way forward might be clear now. Like, you know, it, that dive might, in the fullness of time, be seen as the... Uh, as the path down from 250 meters in a kind of relatively, I mean, I was going to say safe, but it's not really safe, but in a pragmatically doable way. But then you start saying, well, what's the next problem that's going to come up? And, you know, so we've fixed the HPNS problem, we've fixed the density problem with hydrogen. So now we can progress down below 250. What's the next problem going to be? And the next problem is going to be probably going to be decompression logistics. I mean, you know, the, the decompression time is just exponentially soaring uh, 
you know, and things like thermal protection in the pest. I mean, well, the temperatures there certainly aren't helping you. Yeah, exactly. Temperatures and all that kind of stuff. So um, it it'll start because the issue will start to become well. How do you do all the decompression you need from those kind of dives? And uh, I, I mean, I, and I'm not saying for a hundred percent sure we've fixed the HPNS and density issues, but it would seem that the path now looks clear down to maybe 300 metres notionally. But man, you're going to have a lot of deco if you start going to those depths on exploration kind of dives. And I, you know, you'd have to be very motivated to want to do that. So I guess, I don't know, I mean, you could say, well, maybe 300 metres is where we see ourselves going now with hydrogen. Uh, beyond that, uh, yeah, hard to say, but I think I think decompression time is going to be start going is going to start to dominate the picture. Do you recall what the uh, saturation decompression time is for three hundred meters? Uh, oh, it'd be it'd be you know it'd be, it's a long time. It'd be a week. You know, if it, if you truly saturate it, it's it's really long. Yeah, oh, that, 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 now that, that's where I'm getting at. Okay, and you know these are the kind of things that. I, I'll give you I'll give you an analog here, and, and before I leave that that, that thing, I'm gonna, I'm going to mention one thing. Simon was there uh, at a little roundtable meeting that we had at Oztech last fall, and Harry was there, and uh, and Craig and uh, uh, JPM Bear was there, and he was going over all these uh, Comex uh, tables, and it was one of the best moments I think I've had in a, in a diving scenario. And JP goes, well, you know. The problem is that if you get beyond 3% hydrogen, you know, we can't be sure that you won't have an explosion. And Harry goes, well, uh, we just dived 5% last weekend in my pool. You know? <laughs> and and the, look, the look on his face, on JP's face was just, I wish I had a camera rolling. It was, it was awesome. Uh, but no, you know, I, I'll give you one other short aside here. Um, we've been spending, good God, I don't know, 37 years for me now working in this place called Cueva Cheve in Southern Mexico. And for the longest time, a 10-day or a two-week stay underground was about what would be merited for what you were doing there. And then suddenly there was a breakthrough in 2021. And what nobody was prepared for, but what ended up happening is if you went in that cave to go work at the bottom, you were spending a month in the cave. I spent 29 days down there and we'd had a couple days work at the end there. The, uh, the point I'm getting at is that people adapt to these environments and you say, all right, you know, how do we go about doing this? When we were at Wakulla in 1999, I don't know how many people here are aware of this, probably Rich is, almost all of the ladder dives that we were doing were saturation dives. And so from that point, the decompression profiles for everybody, regardless of whether they spent two, three, four, five, or six hours at 100 meters depth, didn't change, you know? And so we were reaping the benefits uh, of having crossed that, that, you know, Rubicon, if you will. and. So, you know, Simon, you said a week, to which I would say, okay, let's do it. Well, it would certainly, certainly be days. Uh, I, I'd, have to, I'd have to look it up. Um, in fact, we're about to publish a, a paper in DHM uh, that's got all the sort of accelerated decompressions from sort of slightly emergency decompressions from SAT. Uh, so it would be quite interesting to go and have a, another look at that. I edited it ages ago, so I can't. Can't quite remember, but um, that'll be coming out in the next issue. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it'd be that'd be very long. But you're right, Bill. I mean, people find a way. It's just uh, 
you know, set dive decompressions are done in set systems and they're a damn sight more comfortable than a habitat in a cave. Um, okay. I've heard that KUR has movies. <laughs> we do. <laughs> the director's cut of Das Boot is, uh, will take up a lot of your time. <laughs> we, uh, we, we have other things to worry about, like sharks. And uh, current yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, for you guys in the uh, in the Pierce, I mean, uh, you know, the deco issue—that's uh, a solvable issue. Um, you know, Bill did a lot of work on that in in Wakala. I mean, they had a uh, pretty luxurious habitat um, for the time. I mean, even for now, it would be uh, probably one of the nicest ones that was ever built. The fact that it could move up through the water column and, um, you know, you were completely out of the water, you could eat, you could drink, you could do whatever, um, uh, you could you could tolerate uh, a pretty long decompression if you can get comfortable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. Uh, it's just all logistics. I mean, it's not easy to put a big habitat in the, in the pier, so... Well, color's a little bit different. You got a bit more open space, but uh... and, and staying warm. I mean, that's going to be the key for you guys is is staying warm. That that probably matters more than anything else, as far as as, as you know, decompression world. We'll yeah. schedule the next workshop for when uh, liquid rebreathers are on the uh, on the forefront, <laughs> and we solve the decompression problem entirely. But now it's all about pneumonia. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I so look, we better. Um, I better cut this anyway, uh, guys. I hey, look, and like I say, heaven for me. I you know I would we could talk all day and quite happily go round round and round, but um, not sure that will serve Nick's purpose. Uh, well, Nick, Nick, I think you've served your purpose here. You got a consensus on a workshop to write the next blueprint for survival. I'd say to, you can remember this date. This has been absolutely amazing, and uh, thank you very much for everybody taking the time to participate. So, yeah, I uh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Nick, for organizing. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yep, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Right. Yep, good to see all you guys again. Yeah, yeah you too. Gassing, a scuba podcast.